42. Rm after a shower illustrates this relation to the water supply. The protonum is always a well-marked stage in the life history. Not only does a moss plant never arise directly from the spore, but in all cases of vegetative reproduction, apart from the separation of branches by decay of older regions of the plant, a protonum is found. Usually the protonum is filamentous and ceases to be evident after the plants have developed, but in some small mosses e.g. ephemerum it plays the chief part in assimilation and lives on from year to year. In sphagnum, andrea and some genera of the bryles the protonum or some of its branches had the form of flat plates or masses of cells. The formation of the moss plant on the protonum is always from a single cell and is similar in all mosses. The first three walls in the cell intersect one another and define the three-sided pyramidal apical cell by means of which the shoot continues to grow. In thysidens and a few other mosses the apical cell is two-sided. The leaves formed by the successive segments gradually attain their normal size and structure. Each segment of the initial cell gives rise to a leaf and a portion of the stem. The branches arise from the lower portion of a segment and stand immediately below a leaf. The leaves may form three vertical rows, but usually their arrangement owing to the direction of the segment walls at the apex, becomes more complicated. Their growth proceeds by means of a two-sided apical cell, and the midrib does not become more than one cell thick until later. In addition to the leaves the stem often bears hair-like structures of different kinds, some of which correspond to modified branches of protonema. The branched filamentous rhizoids which spring from the lower region of the stem also correspond to protonemal branches. The structure of both stem and leaf reaches a high grade of organization in some mosses. Not only are thick-walled sclerenchyma two cells developed to give rigidity to the periphery of the stem and the midrib of the leaf, but in many cases a special water-conducting tissue, consisting of elongated cells, the end walls of which are thin and oblique, forms a definite central strand in the stem. In the forms in which it is most highly developed polytrichaceae this tissue, which is comparable with the xylem of higher plants, is surrounded by a zone of tissue physiologically comparable to phloem, and in the rhizome may be limited by an endodermis. The conducting strands in the leaves show the same tissues as in the central strand of the stem, and in the polytrichaceae and some other mosses are in continuity with it. The independent origin of this conducting system is of great interest for comparison with the vascular system of the sporophyte of the higher plants. The sexual organs, with the exception of the antheridia of sphagnum, are born at the apices of the main shoot or of branches. Their general similarity to the mature antheridia and archegonia of liverworts and the main difference in their development have been referred to. The antheridia open by means of a capsule or groups of cells with mucilaginous contents. The details of construction of the sporogonium are referred to below. In all cases except Archidium well is present, and all the cells derived from the Archosporium produce spores, no elaters being formed. In a few cases the germination of the spore commences within the capsule. The development of the sporogonium proceeds in all cases except in sphagnum by means of an apical cell cutting off two rows of segments. The first periclinal division in the region forming the capsule separates an inner group of cells the endophysium form the peripheral layer amphithysium. In sphagnum, as in anthoceros, the archosporium is derived from the amphithysium, in all other mosses it is the outermost layer of the endophysium. Vegetative propagation is widely spread in the mosses, and, as mentioned above, a protonum is always formed in the development of the new plant. The social growth of the plants characteristic of many mosses is a result of the formation of numerous plants on the original protonum and on developments from the rhizoids. Besides this, jemmy may be formed on the protonema, 
on the leaves or at the apex, and some mosses have specialized shoots for their better protection or distribution. Thus in Georgia the stalked, multicellular gemmae are born at the ends of shoots surrounded by a rosette of larger leaves, and in Olecomnium androgenum they are raised on an elongated leafless region of the shoot. In other cases detached leaves or shoots may give rise to new plants, and when a moss is artificially divided almost any fragment may serve for reproduction. Even in those rare cases in which the sexual generation can be developed without the intervention of spore production from the tissues of the sporogonium, a protonum is formed from cut pieces of the seed or in some cases from intact sporogonia still attached to the plant. This phenomenon of apostry was first discovered in mosses, but is now also known in a number of ferns CPDRIDOPHYDA. Illustration, Figure 13, Sphagnum acutifolium, after Schimper. A longitudinal section of apex of a bud bearing archegonia are enclosed by the large leaves Y, chapter small paracaeal leaves, the longitudinal section of the sporogonium born on the pseudopodium PS, C. calyptra, R, neck of archegonium, SG, foot, SG, capsule, CS squarosum, ripe sporogonium raised on the pseudopodium QS above the enclosing leaves chapter, see the ruptured calyptra, SG, capsule, D. operculum. Sphagnales. The single genus Sphagnum occupies a very distinct and isolated position among mosses. The numerous species, which are familiar as the bog mosses, are so similar that minute structural characters have to be relied on in their identification. The plants occur in large patches of a pale green or reddish color on moors, and, when filling up small lakes or pools, may attain a length of some feet. Their growth has played a large part in the formation of feet. The species are distributed in temperate and arctic climates, but in the tropics only occur at high levels. The protonema forms a flat, lobed, phylloid structure attached to the soil by rhizoids, and the plants arise from marginal cells. The main shoot bears numerous branches which appear to stand in whorls, some of them bend down and become applied to the surface of the main axis. The structure of the stem and leaves is peculiar. The former shows on cross-section of thin-walled central tissue surrounded by a zone of thick-walled cells. Outside this come one to five layers of large clear cells, which when mature are dead and empty, their walls are strengthened with a spiral thickening and perforated with round pores. They serve to absorb and conduct water by capillarity. The leaves have no midrib and similar empty cells occur regularly among the narrow chlorophyll-containing cells, which thus appear as a green network. The Anthiridia are globular and have long stalks. They stand by the side of leaves of special club-shaped branches. The archegonial groups occupy the apices of short branches. Figure 13. A. The mature sporogonium consists of a wide foot separated by a constriction from the globular capsule. B. There is no distinct seed, but the capsule is raised on a leafless outgrowth of the end of the branch called a pseudopodium CQS. The capsule, the wall of which bears rudimentary stomata has a small operculum but no peristome. There is a short, wide columella, over which the dome-shaped spore sac extends, and no air space is present between the spore sac and the wall. In the embryo a number of tiers of cells are first formed, the lower tiers B.04 P.065 to form the foot, while in the upper part the first divisions mark off the columella, around which the archosporium, derived from the amphithecium, extends. The sporogonium when nearly mature bursts the calyptra irregularly. The capsule opens explosively in dry weather, the operculum and spores being thrown to a distance. The spore on germination forms a short filament which soon broadens out into the thalloid protonema. 
Some 12 species of sphagnum are found in Britain. Illustration, Figure 14. Andrea E. Petrophila. Plant bearing open capsule. KPS. Pseudopodium. C. Calyptra. SPF. Foot of Sporogonium. From Strasburger's textbook of botany Andrea Eels. The species of the single genus Andrea E. Figure 14 are small, dark colored mosses growing for the most part in tufts on bare rocks in alpine and arctic regions. Four species occur on alpine rocks in Britain. The spore on germination gives rise to a small mass of cells from which one or more short filaments grow. The filament soon broadens into a ribbon-shaped phallus, several cells thick, which is closely applied to the rock. Erect branches may arise from the protonema, and jenny may be developed on it. The stem of the plant, which arises in the usual way, has no conducting strand and the leaves may or may not have midrids. The leaf grows by a dome shaped instead of by the usual two-sided initial cell. The antheridia are long-stalked. The upper portion of the archigonial wall is carried up as a calyptra on the sporogonium, which, as in sphagnum, has no seed and is raised on a pseudopodium. The development of the sporogonium proceeds as in the bryles, but the dome-shaped archosporium extends over the summit of the columella and in air space is wanting. The capsule does not open by an operculum but by four or six longitudinal slits, which do not reach either the base or apex. In one exotic species the splits occur only at the upper part of the capsule, and the terminal cap breaks away. This isolated example thus appears to approach the bryles in its mode of dehiscence. Bryles, in contrast to the preceding to this group includes a very large number of genera and species. Thus even in Britain between 5 and 600 species belonging to more than 100 genera are found. They occur in the most varied situations, on soil, on rocks and trees, and in a few instances found in alleys, in water, although exhibiting a wide range in size and in the structural complexity of both generations, they all conform to a general type, so that funaria, described above, will serve as a fair example of the group. The protonum is usually filamentous, and in some of the simplest forms is long-lived, while the small plants born on it serve mainly to protect the sexual organs and sporogonia. This is the case in ephemerum which grows on the damp soil of clay fields, and the plants are even more simply constructed in Buxbonia, which occurs on soil rich in humus and is possibly partially saprophytic. In this moss the filamentous protonum is capable of assimilation, but the leaves of the small plants are destitute of chlorophyll, so that they are dependent on the protonema. The male plant has no definite stem, and consists of a single concave leaf protecting the antheridium. The female plant is rather more highly organized, consisting of a short stem bearing a few leaves around the group of archigonia. The sporogonium is of large size and highly organized, though it presents peculiar features in the peristome. Buxbonia has been regarded by Gobel as representing a stage which other mosses have passed, and has been described by him as the simplest type of moss. In ephemerum also we may probably regard the relation of the small plants to the protonum as a primitive one. On the other hand, in the case of ephemeroses, which grows on the leaves of living plants in Java. The high organization of the sporogonium makes it probable that the persistent protonum is an adaptation to the peculiar conditions of life. A highly developed protonum provided with leaf-like assimilating organs is found in Georgia, Diphosine and Adipodium, all of which show peculiarities in the sporogonium as well. The cells of the protonum of Schistosteca, which lives in the shade of caves, are so constructed as to concentrate the feeble available light on the chloroplasts. 
we may perhaps regard the persistent protonema bearing small leafy plants as a primitive condition, and look upon those larger plants which remain unbranched and bear the sexual organs at the apex e.g. schistostega as representing the next stage. From this condition different lines of specialization in the form and structure of the plant can be recognized. A large number of mosses stand at about the same grade as funaria, in that the plants are small, sparingly branched, usually radial, and do not show a very highly differentiated internal structure. In others the form of the plant becomes more complex by copious branching and the differentiation of shoots of different orders. In these cases the shoot system is often more or less dorsiventral, and the sexual organs are borne on short lateral branches e.g. thwidium tamarisinum, the polytrichaceae, on the other hand, show a specialization in structure rather than in form. The high organization of their conducting system has been referred to above. But though many species are able to exist in relatively dry situations, the plants are still dependent on the absorption of water by the general surface. The parallel lamellae of assimilating cells which grow from the upper surface of the leaf in these and some other mosses probably serve to retain water in the neighborhood of the assimilating cells and so prolong their activity. As common adaptive features in the leaves the occurrence of papillae or outgrowths of the cell walls to retain water, and the white hair-like leaf tips, which assist in protecting the young parts at the apex of many xerophytic mosses, may be mentioned. The leaves of leucobrine, which occurs in pale green tufts in shaded woods, show a parallel adaptation to that found in sphagnum. They are several cells thick, and the small assimilating cells lie between two layers of empty water storage cells the walls of which are perforated by pores, with the possible exception of Orchidium. The Sporogonium is throughout the Bryleys constructed on one plan. Orchidium is a small moss occurring occasionally on the soil of wet fields. The Protonum is not persistent, and the plants are well developed, resembling those of Pleridium. The Sporogonium has a small foot and practically no seed, and differs in the development and structure of its capsule from all other mosses. The spores are derived from the Endothesium but no distinction of a sterile columella and an archosporium is established in this, a variable number of its cells becoming spore mother cells while the rest serve to nourish the spores. The layer of cells immediately around the endothesium becomes the spore sac, and an airspace forms between this and the wall of the capsule. The very large, thin-walled spores escape on the decay of the capsule, which ruptures the archegonial wall irregularly. On account of the absence of a columella archidium is sometimes placed in a distinct group. But since its peculiarities have possibly arisen by reduction it seems at present best retained among the bryleys. In all other bryleys there is a definite columella extending from the base to the apex of the capsule. The archosporium is derived from the outermost layer of cells of the endothesium, and an airspace is formed between the spore sac and the wall. In the polytrichaceae another airspace separates the spore sac from the columella. There is great variety in the length of the seed, which is sometimes practically absent. The apophyses, which may be a more or less distinct region, usually bears stomata and is the main organ of assimilation. In the Splotnaceae it is expanded for this purpose, while in a dipodium it constitutes most of the long pale stalk which supports the capsule. A distinct operculum is usually detached by the help of the annulus, and its removal may leave the mouth of the capsule widely open. More usually there is a peristome, consisting of one or two series of teeth which serves to narrow the opening and in various ways to ensure the gradual shedding of the spores in dry weather. In most mosses the teeth are portions of thickened cell walls but in the polytrichaceae they are formed of a number of sclerenchymatous cells, 
In polytrichuma membranous epiphragm stretches across the wide mouth of the capsule between the tips of the short peristome teeth, and closes the opening except for the interspaces of the peristome. In a number of forms, which were formerly grouped together, the capsule does not open to liberate the spores. These Kleistocarpous forms are now recognized as related to various natural groups, in which the majority of the species possess an operculum. In such forms as Fascon the columella persists, and the only peculiarity is in the absence of arrangements for dehiscence. In ephemerum V.04P.0653 and the closely related nanometrine which has a small operculum the columella becomes absorbed during the development of the spores. Stomata are present on the wall of the small capsule. Such facts as these suggest that in many cases the Kleistocarpous condition is the result of reduction rather than primitive, and that possibly the same holds for Arcadium. The former subdivision of the Bryles into Musi Kleistocarpi and Musi Stigocarpi according to the absence or presence of an operculum is thus clearly artificial. The same holds even more obviously for the grouping of the Stigocarpous forms into those in which the artigonial group terminates a main axis acrocarpi and those in which it is born on a more or less developed lateral branch pleurocarpi. Modern classifications of the Bryles depend mainly on the construction of the peristome. Illustration, Figure 15. Funaria hygrometrica, longitudinal section through the summit of a male branch, after sacs, leaves, leaves cut through the midribs, separaphyses, bianthiridia, it remains to be considered to what extent the several natural groups of plants classed together in the bryophyta can be placed in a phylogenetic relation to one another, practically no help is afforded by polyadbotany, and only the comparison of existing forms can be depended on. The indications of probable lines of evolution are clearest in the hepatici. The mercantiles form an obviously natural evolutionary group, and the same is probably true of the younger maniales. Although in neither case can the partial lines of progression within the main groups be said to be quite clear, such a form as Thurocarpus, which has features in common with the lower mercantiles, enables us to form an idea of the divergence of the two groups from a common ancestry. The Anthocerotales, on the other hand, stand in an isolated position, and recent researches have served to emphasize this rather than to confirm the relationship with the younger maniales suggested by Leigh. The indications of a serial progression are not so clear in the mosses, but the majority of the forms may be regarded as forming a great phylogenetic group in the evolution of which the elaboration of the moss plant has proceeded until the protonum appears as a mere preliminary stage to the formation of the plants, parallel with the evolution of the gametophyte in form and structure. A progression can be traced in the sporogonium, although the simplest sporogonia available for study may owe much of their simplicity to a reduction. The andriales may perhaps be looked on as a divergent primitive branch of the same stock. On the other hand, the sphagnales show such considerable and important differences from the rest of the mosses, that like the anthocerotales among the liverworts, they may be regarded as a group, the relationship of which to the main stem is at least problematical, between the hepatici. Anthocerotales, sphagnales and musi. There are no connecting forms known, and it must be left as an open question whether the bryophyta are a monophyletic or polyphyletic group. The question of the relationship of the bryophyta on the one hand to the philophyta and on the other to the pteridophyta lies even more in the region of speculation, on slender grounds without much hope of decisive evidence. In a general sense we may regard the bryophyta as derived from an algal ancestry without being able to suggest the nature of the ancestral forms or the geological period at which they arose, 
Recent researches on those algae such as Coleoquite which appeared to afford a close comparison in their alternation of generations with Richa, had shown that the body resulting from the segmentation of the fertilized ovum is not so strictly comparable in the two cases as had been supposed. The series of increasingly complex sporogonia among bryophytes appears to be most naturally explained on an hypothesis of progressive sterilization of sporogenous tissue, such as has been advanced by Bauer. On the other hand there are not wanting indications of reduction in the bryophyte sporogonium which make an alternative view of its origin at least possible. With regard to the relationship of the bryophyte and pteridophyte the article on the latter group should be consulted. It will be sufficient to say in conclusion that while the alternating generations in the two groups are strictly comparable, no evidence of actual relationship is yet forthcoming. Illustration, Figure 16, Funaria Hygrometrica, After Gobel, A longitudinal section of the very young sporogonium FF enclosed in the archigonial wall BHPC. Further stages of the development of the sporogonial neth enclosed in the calyptra formed from the archigonial wall C and still bearing the neck H. The foot of the sporogonium has penetrated into the underlying tissue of the stem of the moss plant. For further information consult, Campbell, Mosses and Ferns London, 1906, Engler and Pranel, Dinate Ehrlich and Flens and Familian, Tiliat, 3 Leipzig, 1893-1907, Gobel, Organography of Plants Oxford. 1905. Full references to the literature of the subject will be found in these works. For the identification of the British species of liverworts and mosses the following recent works will be of use. Pearson. The Hepatici of the British Isles London. 1902. Dixon and Jameson. The Student's Handbook of British Mosses London. 1896. Brithwaite. British Moss Flora London. 1887-1905. WHLBRZOZOWSKI, Thaddeus D. 1820, 19th General of the Jesuits, was appointed in succession to Gabriel Gruber on the 2nd of September 1805. In 1801 Pius VII, had given the Jesuits liberty to reconstitute themselves in North Russia see Jesuits, history, and in 1812 Shuzowski secured the recognition of the Jesuit College of Polotsk as a university. Though he could not obtain permission to go to Spain to agitate for the recognition v.04p.0654 of the Spanish Jesuits, in 1814 Pius VII, in accordance with the bull Solicitude Omnium Ecclesiarum, gave to the Shuzowski among others full authority to receive those who desired to enter the society. The Russian government, however, soon began to be alarmed at the growth of the Jesuits and on the 20th of December 1815 published an edict expelling them from St. Petersburg. Shuzowski, having vainly requested to be allowed to retire to Rome, died on the 5th of February 1820. He is interesting mainly from the fact that he was general of the society at the time of its restoration throughout Europe. B-U-B-A-S-D-I's, the Greekized name of the Egyptian goddess Eubasti, meaning, she of the city Bast, B. Semicolon Asti, a city better known by its later name. Eubasti. Place of Eubasti, thus the goddess derived her name Eubasti from her city Bast, and in turn the city derived its name Eubasti from that of the goddess, the Greeks, confusing the name of the city with that of the goddess, called the latter Bubastes, and the former also Bubastes later Bubastos. Bubastes, capital of the 19th nome of Lower Egypt, is now represented by a great mound of ruins called Telbastus, near Zagazig including the site of a large temple described by Herodotus strewn with blocks of granite. The monuments discovered there, although only those in hard stone have survived, 
are more important than at any other site in the delta except Tanais and cover a wider range, commencing with Kufa Kiops and continuing to the 30th dynasty. Yabasti was one of many feline goddesses, figured with the head of a lioness, in the great development of reverence for sacred animals which took place after the New Kingdom. The domestic cat was especially the animal of Eubastes, although it had also to serve for all the other feline goddesses, owing no doubt to the scarcity and intractability of its congeners. Her hieratic and most general form was still lioness-headed, but a popular form, especially in bronze, was a cat-headed woman, often holding in her right hand a lionegis, i.e. a broad semicircular pectoral surmounted by the head of a lioness, and on the left arm a basket. The cat cemetery on the west side of the town consisted of numbers of large brick chambers, crammed with bird and decayed mummies, many of which had been enclosed in cat-shaped cases of wood and bronze. Herodotus describes the festival of Eubastes, which was attended by thousands from all parts of Egypt and was a very riotous affair. It has its modern equivalent in the Muslim festival of the Sheikhs at El Badawi at Tanta. The tablet of Canopus shows that there were two festivals of Eubastes, the great and the lesser. Perhaps the lesser festival was held at Memphis, where the quarter called Encto contained a temple to this goddess. Her name is found on monuments from the Third Dynasty onwards, but a great stimulus was given to her worship by the 22nd Bubastite Dynasty and generally by the increased importance of Lower Egypt in later times. Her character seems to have been essentially mild and playful, in contrast to Sokmai and other feline goddesses. The Greeks equated Eubasti with their Artemis confusing her with the Leonine Taphne, sister of Shuio Apollo. The Egyptians themselves delighted in identifying together goddesses of the most diverse forms and attributes, but Eubasti was almost indistinguishable in form from Taphne. The name of her son Ifim is an FR trademark, pronounced Ifim, may mean, all good, and, in the absence of other information about him, suggests a reason why he was identified with Prometheus. C.K. Sethi in Pauli the Soazriel Encyclopedia, E. Nadal, Bubastes, and Festival Hall of Osorconii, Herodotus E.I., 67, 137-156, Grenfell and Hunt, High Bay Papyri, I.F.L.L., Gibicaramanga, a city of Colombia, capital of the Department of Santander, about 185 meters and any of Pop, Estimate, 1900-25.000. It is situated on the Lebridge River, 30 to 48 feet above sea level, in a mountainous country rich in gold, silver and iron mines, and having superior coffee producing lands in the valleys and on the lower slopes. The city is laid out with wide, straight streets, is well built, and has many public buildings of a substantial character. Buccaneers, the name given to piratical adventurers of different nationalities united in their opposition to Spain who maintained themselves chiefly in the Caribbean Sea during the 17th century. The island of Santo Domingo was one of several in the West Indies which had early in the 16th century been almost depopulated by the oppressive colonial policy of Spain. Along its coast there were several isolated establishments presided over by Spaniards, who were deprived of a convenient market for the produce of the soil by the monopolies imposed by the mother country, accordingly English. Dutch and French vessels were welcomed and their cargoes readily bought. The island, thinned of its former inhabitants, had become the home of immense herds of wild cattle, and it became the habit of smugglers to provision at Santo Domingo. The natives still left were skilled in preserving flesh at their little establishments called bookends, 
the adventurers learned buccaning from the natives, and gradually Hispaniola became the scene of an extensive and illicit butcher trade. Spanish monopolies filled the seamen who sailed the Caribbean with a natural hate of everything Spanish. The pleasures of a roving life, enlivened by occasional skirmishes with forces organized and led by Spanish officials, gained upon them. Out of such conditions arose the buccaneer, alternately sailor and hunter, even occasionally a planter roving, bold, and scrupulous, often savage, with an intense detestation of Spain, as the Spaniards would not recognize the right of other races to make settlements, or even to trade in the West Indies, the governments of France, England and Holland would do nothing to control their subjects who invaded the islands, they left them free to make settlements at their own risk, each nation contributed a band of colonists, who selected the island of St. Kitts or St. Christopher, in the West Indies, where the settlers of both nations were simultaneously planted, the English and French were, however, not very friendly, and in 1629, after the retirement of several of the former to an adjoining island, the remaining colonists were surprised and partly dispersed by the arrival of a Spanish fleet of 39 sail, but on the departure of the fleet the scattered bands returned, and encouragement was given to their countrymen in Santo Domingo, for buccaneering had now become a most profitable employment. Operations were extended, and a storehouse secure from the attacks of the Spaniards was required. The small island of Tortuga northwest of Hispaniola was seized for this purpose in 1630, converted into a magazine for the goods of the rivals, and made their headquarters. Santo Domingo itself still continuing their hunting ground, a purely English settlement directed by a company in London was made at Old Providence, an island in the Caribbean Sea, now belonging to Colombia. It began a little before 1630, and was suppressed by the Spaniards in 1641. Spain was unable to take immediate action. Eight years later, however, watching their opportunity when many buccaneers were absent in the larger island, the Spaniards attacked Tortuga, and massacred every settler they could seize. But the others returned, and the buccaneers, now in open hostility to the Spanish arms, began to receive recruits from every European trading nation and for three quarters of a century became the scourge of the Spanish-American trade and dominions. France, throughout all this, had not been idle. She had named the governor of St. Kitts, governor-general for the French West India Islands, and in 1641 he took possession of Tortuga, expelled all English from the island, and attempted the same with less success in Santo Domingo. England was absorbed in the Civil War, and the buccaneers had to maintain themselves as best they could, now mainly on the sea. In 1654 the Spaniards regained Tortuga from the French, into whose hands it again, however, fell after six years, but the state of affairs was too insecure even for these rovers, and they would speedily have succumbed had not a refuge.